The Holy Gospel, according to St. Matthew, the first chapter. And this shall also be the basis for our sermon today. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matthan, and Matthan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the gospel of the Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was in school, and I'm guessing many of you, when you were in school, created, I created something kind of like this, a family tree. I think this was elementary school age that I did this. I don't remember many specifics, but I do remember it was, it was kind of neat to create a, a family tree, if you will, because I got to learn uh, about who I am, where I come from, my, my lineage, my genealogy, uh, my ancestors. And um, have we, at, in school, have the kids created a family tree yet? Okay. Joy, have you created a family tree ever in school? Yes. And uh, do you remember anything, Joy, from when you created a family tree, anything that you thought was maybe interesting or that you learned? 
Grandma Dolly's Italian. Okay, very good. So that, that, that's good. So a little context there. So Joy, Isaac, and Asher are the children of Larry. Larry's full name is Lawrence. If you didn't know, Larry's a nickname for Lawrence, right? Lawrence William McGurr Jr., Right? I'm a junior as well. My dad, Lawrence William McGurr Sr., and then, and then his dad, uh, uh, Fred, and I don't remember Fred's middle name off the top of my head, but McGurr. Right? And so that, there is one line. Now, what Joy is referring to, Grandma Dolly, that's following my mother's line. And so uh, my mother is Monica Lynn Williams, and then McGurr by marriage, right? And then her mother is... Uh, Lillian Romano, and Lillian, my grandma, affectionately through the years has been called by her family Dolly, right? And so uh, Grandma Dolly, her parents came over uh, through Ellis Island, right? And they, they were part of um, the immigration, I, I suppose, of the, oh, around the turn of the this century, 19th and 20th century, and and uh, yeah, they came from Italy. And so this impacted for me growing up how we would do things like celebrate Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve, we would have an, uh, what was, they would call a traditional Italian Christmas Eve celebration, and we had lots of fish. That's what I remember. Smelt. I don't know. Take it for what it is. But so. Um, yeah, so, so lots of fish was, was present there, and it's just interesting to know our heritage. I know as I've done my own family tree, I kind of came to learn quickly that I'm a mutt, right? My, I, I've got roots back to, to England. I'm um, a German, right? And so some of you <clears throat> good Lutherans are sitting here, and they're, oh, a German Lutheran, right? Yeah. It, don't get too excited. If you can not tell, McGurr is not a German uh, last name. I've got Scotch-Irish in me and Welsh. I've got Italian and, and uh, Austrian in my bloodline, right? And so uh, it's, a, it's a mix of who I am, where, where I've come from, and that's, that's me. That's my story. That's our family's lineage and family tree. And as we get to to look at family trees, I think that it's helpful, it's important. It's helpful because it takes things like history, who some of us might not be super enthralled with history, but when we realize, huh, my uncle fought in the Vietnam War, and my grandfather and my other grandfather fought in World War II. Right and and going back, maybe you've got connections to uh, people who your great 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 grandfather maybe served in the Civil War, those sorts of things, and we start to make some neat connections. I think, and and I think that's exactly what we see happening here in Matthew. Matthew lays out this genealogy of Jesus, and. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this. We are now into the second week of a series through the book of Matthew, a series called Follow Me, Jesus' Words, what we talked about last week, to Peter and Andrew, 
and to James and John and later to Matthew and to others. Uh, throughout the book of Matthew, his words are regularly, follow me. And, and so I think it's worth it for us to take a look at if, if, if Jesus is asking us to follow him, who is he? Is he, is he worth it? Is, is, is this the person for sure? Because the last thing that we would want to do is to follow someone and find out, oh, I shouldn't have been following that person all along. They were leading me down the wrong path, right? And so Matthew, kind of along those lines, he starts with us. In fact, not only does he start his gospel, the book of Matthew with this lineage of Jesus. But this is the first book in the New Testament. So as the church compiled the New Testament and put it together, they saw fit that we put Matthew's Gospels first, that, that we understand who Jesus is. And, and let's talk a little bit about, about Matthew's Gospel in, in particular, specifically. Of course, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each has their own little different uh, flavor, their own different spin. Of course, they all point to Christ, to Jesus as the Lord and Savior. They all point to the cross. They all point to the resurrection of Jesus. But Matthew has some specific nuances. And one thing that we as the church have come to understand with Matthew's gospel is that Matthew was writing to a primarily Jewish community. So what this means is that a primarily Jewish community in the first century A.D., they would have known well their Old Testament. And so throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew regularly says, I think ten times he explicitly says, this was to fulfill what was said in the prophet so-and-so, right, Isaiah, and on and on. And he would, he'll quote the Old Testament. And so you think about it, as he's speaking to these first century Jewish followers of God, these people who have grown up on the Old Testament, grown up hearing words like Isaiah 11, and that from the stump of Jesse would come the Messiah, the Christ, you can see why it would be really important for, for Matthew to, to show some connection, some continuity between what Jesus has done and what the Old Testament prophesied. And so that's what, that's what we can focus on first regarding this genealogy. When, when Jesus asked us to follow him, we know that there is continuity between who Jesus is, what he claims, what's, what he's doing, and what God has promised hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before. Starting his list, and this is where Luke also gives a genealogy, of Jesus, but his is a little different because he's writing to a different audience and he has a little different focus. Luke begins his genealogy in Luke chapter 3, his genealogy of Jesus, back at the very beginning with Adam. 
But that's not what Matthew does. Matthew starts with Abraham. Abraham, of course, being Father Abraham, right? The father of the nation of Israel, if you will. And so you can see right away that he's drawing these, these lines all the way back to Abraham. We also see, and then Matthew makes explicit, that he is showing the connections of Jesus, the lineage, back to David, the king, the Messiah, the anointed one. We read in, in the Old Testament how, how David uh, was specifically called by God and that doesn't mean it was easy. It doesn't mean it was a straight line necessarily to the throne for David. He's the youngest. He wasn't supposed to be king, if you will, all right? Youngest son of, of Jesse. And yet, here he is. He, sh- he shows up, and he's the king. And so it's through David's line that Jesus comes. And I think there is value for us today not just maybe a fascinating note. Oh, maybe that, that's why Matthew starts with this genealogy, which I don't know how, how many of us, as I was reading it, if, and you don't have to raise your hands, but it's, it's not, not the easiest to listen to as opposed to a story, right? It's a list of names. Most of those names up there, eh, they're a little fuzzy. Maybe I remember a little bit of my Old Testament Sunday school lessons or whatever, but some of them, you're like, who is Shealtiel, right? Well, you could see Matthew, why Matthew is doing this, but it's, it's worth it to know that when Jesus calls us to follow him today, he's calling us to follow in the line, in the lineage of the people of God. And you see, when, when Jesus calls us, He's calling us into the story of God. Sometimes in our, in our world today, we, we can see lists like this. There are some translations of the Bible that almost kind of do away with this list. It's, uh, it's white noise, right? There are people who say things, you know, well-meaning Christians, well-intended Christians, but wrong-headed nonetheless, say things like, we need to unhinge the New Testament from the Old Testament. And you can kind of understand why people might say that, right? Uh, the Old Testament's tough. The Old Testament has big names. It's a long time ago. There's violence that sometimes uh, turns our stomach. There are rules in the books of, of, of Leviticus and, um, and in, in uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, we look at them and we're like, what does that have to do with us, right? I think we're doing ourselves a disservice if we try to disconnect or uh, unhinge, if you will, the New Testament from the Old Testament because then we're cutting ourselves off from the story of God in, in the world. A story that, if you go back Matthew's version, goes back 4,000 years. Pretty powerful. In 
Christendom and Christianity since the, uh, the Bible had been written and since the church had been, been marching through, those, through the ages, through these past 2,000 years, Christians, followers of Christ, have been intentional to connect back to what has been done in the past, to the story of God. We say the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is not something that we, we discard. In fact, some branches of Christianity just kind of, uh, yeah, that's not for us, right? We hang on to the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed being written, and the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, right? We hang on to these and we confess these regularly because we know that as we're confessing them, we're confessing uh, our faith along with our fathers and our mothers in Christianity back all the way to the 4th century A.D. And they created those creeds as sort of a litmus test of what saving faith, what faith in Jesus Christ is to look like in the church. In the Lutheran Confessions, the Lutheran Confessions written in the 16th century, there are numerous, multiple quotes of early church fathers like Irenaeus and, and Tertullian who lived in the 2nd century A.D. or, or Augustine who was 5th century A.D. Regularly, and, oh, and they, the, the Lutheran confessions include the, Ath, uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, you know, things. And, and what were the, the Lutherans at the time of the Reformation, of course, led by Martin Luther and others like Philip Melanchthon, what were they trying to do by citing these quotations of the church fathers? They were speaking to the Roman church at the time, who they were at, you know, early on at least trying to still make peace with, and saying, look, what we believe, what we teach, what we confess has continuity with what the church has believed, taught, and confessed throughout the ages. We're not making this up. And it's, it's powerful to know personally that our stories are connected with God's story. Sometimes we try to find meaning and identity for our, ourselves and our lives by looking within, looking at our own passions, looking at our own desires, uh, try to make a name for ourselves, right? As Christians, we believe that we've been given a name. In baptism, we've been given the name of son of God, of daughter of God. Part of the baptismal rite that we uh, usually traditionally go through, we start out by asking and, you know, what the name of the baptized individual is. And say, it's John Smith. And I, right before the baptism, I'll go up to them and I say, John Smith, I mark you with the sign of the cross both upon your head and upon your heart to mark you as one redeemed by Christ 
the crucified. It's at that moment, and as we go to the font and to the waters of baptism, of course, as the water is combined with the word, and that, that our stories are connected with the story of Jesus, that our lives are connected with the life of Jesus, that, that our sin is taken on by Christ, the, the, the sin that was taken on the cross 2,000 years ago, that, that we receive through the power of God's word working through the water and through faith in our hearts, we receive the life that Jesus earned, that Jesus won on Easter morning. We are now connected to a story, to a good story, to the right story, to God's story in history. Now as we look through our family tree, sometimes people who look at their family tree find out, oh, they're part of my family. Oh, my great-great-great-grandfather was the great-uncle of Napoleon, or you know, whatever. That's I have to go. I have to add a few more greats there. Or Hitler, or Stalin, <sighs> or my great 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 grandfather owned slaves. Gulp. Don't want that to get out. Uh, sometimes we look back at at our history, and I, I think if I remember right. Uh, my great-grandfather ran around with uh, John Dillinger, right? Does anyone, wasn't he like a bank robber or something like that? It's like, ooh, don't necessarily want that one to get out. I'm not going to put that on my resume anytime soon, right? So let's just keep that quiet. But that's, that's very different than what Matthew does. As we look at the list that Matthew lays out for us of, of those who are included in the lineage of Christ, he is explicit. He explicitly includes sinners. Uh, we, we can look at well, I mean, everyone, and as Christians, we're going to say, yeah, we're all sinners. We all fall in short of the grace of God. And we can start to look at various people like uh, Abraham. Yep, we know his story. He made mistakes. Again, who's Matthew's original audience? It's Jews, Jews who knew the Old Testament, Jew who knew, Jews who knew the Old Testament stories, Jew who, Jews who knew the story of Abraham and knew, oh, yeah, Abraham wasn't perfect, right? And, and he, he includes people. Like Judah, who had an ancestral relationship with Tamar. He includes people like Rahab. Anyone remember what Rahab's job was? She was a prostitute, right? We don't know any of the backstory, what led to her getting into that vocation, if you will, but but we could say that's less than what God has for her, that it was hurting herself, it was hurting other people to, to work in that 
industry. We also see adultery. And adultery is putting the best spin on the situation. Maybe another, a better word for this would be power rape. Remember, David. David, King David, yeah, wait. Matthew is taking all this time to make sure that we know that David was, was the king and that Jesus connected back to David. And yet, he writes this. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Who is the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba. All right. Notice that Matthew doesn't even name Bathsheba here. And this, this is nothing to do negative with her. In fact, as far as we can tell uh, throughout all of Scripture, she was innocent. Right? Like, there is no time in Scripture where she was uh, confronted as being guilty of what sin? Of, 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 of adultery, right? Yeah, there's that evening in the spring. King David's walking in the courts of his palace and he looks down from his high lofty roof and looks down and he sees this beautiful woman who's bathing and he says, I want her. It was the spring. It was the time when kings were supposed to be out at battle leading their armies. David, what was David doing home? We don't even know about that. You know who was in battle though? Uriah. David commits adultery. Bathsheba gets pregnant. David tries to cover it up. And so he orders Uriah to essentially lead a suicide attack, knowing that Uriah would die. David's confronted by the prophet Nathan. Nathan uses a uh, a, a story to kind of trap David within his own sin. And David is convicted immediately. In fact, the whole reason that we have Psalm 51, go look it up on your spare time if, if you'd like, the whole reason we have that is because it's a psalm, a song of repentance written by David after he's finally filled with guilt and recognized Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. I, uh, Matthew doesn't even name Bathsheba. He says explicitly, the wife of Uriah, the wife of another man. Sometimes in, in our world today, we are quick to kind of downplay or hide uh, our our brokenness, to hide uh, our shame, maybe the, the shame of our, our past ancestors, maybe shame and sin from our personal past. We, oh, if anyone found out, that could be bad. If anyone found out in this world today, what, what would happen? You'd be canceled. 
right? That's, uh, that's the term that gets thrown away. Cancel culture, right? Something bad comes out, cancel them, unfollow, shame them publicly on social media. Let their boss know. And this is not to say that we shouldn't be held uh, uh, accountable for our sins. No. Uh, There is something to be said about that. We absolutely have to be called out. But, But notice what Jesus does isn't cancel us. He doesn't say, oh, you messed up. Church starts at 9.30 and you showed up at 9.32. He doesn't say, oh, you messed up. Look at you. (laughs) Divorced. (laughs) Follower of me. No way. That's not what Jesus does. No, what Jesus does is that he confronts us with our sin, that's the word of God, right? Convicts us of our sin. Comforts us with the gospel. You're forgiven. I died that debt on Calvary's cross. And then converts our hearts over and over and over That's what Jesus is doing. And so, although you and I are not worthy to follow Jesus, we are not worthy by our lies, by our thoughts, by our actions. We deserve to be canceled. And yet, Jesus still comes to us and he says, you, follow me. That's, that's someone that I want to follow because I know I'd be living a lie if I followed anyone else. So Jesus' lineage written by Matthew, it, it connects our story with the story of God's people throughout the ages. It's, it's a story that's filled with sinners like us that are forgiven by God. And something else from Matthew's lineage that's worth noting. Back in the first century AD, in Jewish culture, lineages primarily would run through the fathers. Yet Matthew makes a point to mention Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, and then ultimately Mary, the mother of our Lord. Five women are mentioned in the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus. And of these women, well, let me just say, okay, that that should be enough for us to take a step back. Well, what's Matthew doing here? But also, two of those women explicitly we know for sure that it would be Rahab the Canaanite and Ruth the Moabite they weren't Jewish they weren't Israelites they weren't from the people of God 
And so as Matthew's writing to a Jewish community, they would pick up on this. And this is subtle, but it's here, right at the very beginning of Jesus's, uh, I'm sorry, of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is for all people. For Jews, for Gentiles, that the mission of God is for all people. Not just his favorites, not just the, the good ones, for all people. Uh, Matthew is hinting at what he makes explicit, what we heard last week, about what, when, when Jesus calls us, he calls us, he says, lay down your fish. When, when he's talking to fishermen, Peter and Andrew and James and John, the, these fishermen, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Right from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we see the call to mission and evangelism. Right from the beginning of Jesus' first call, we see the call for mission and evangelism. And then, of course, Matthew's gospel ends on what's re- referred to as the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of only the Jewish people, only the ones you like, only the ones that share your political views, only the... No. Go and make disciples of all people. Right from the very beginning, Matthew is, is hinting that God, that his story is for everyone, is for all people. See, making disciples isn't simply a, an add-on for Christians, for the super-Christians, the ones who really get it are really passionate. It isn't a, an afterthought. It isn't something that we have to grow into. Making disciples from the very beginning of Jesus calling you is something that, that is inherent in the call. So know this, that when you're called by Jesus, you're not only brought into this story, you're not only redeemed of your sins, but you are given a purpose, you are equipped, you are sent out to be a disciple maker or to, and to equip and empower the church to do mission. Now, if we're going to play with the fishers of men analogy, I, I recognize that within that call, that call for mission, there are some nuances, right? Some of us are explicitly the, the fishers of men that publicly are on Pentecost, standing up and testifying to the risen Christ, right? Like Peter himself. Others are mending the nets. Others are rowing the boat. You see? Yeah, others are, are, I don't know, maybe I'm... You know, I, I was going to say others are, are skinning the fish and getting them ready for the meal, but then it gets really weird, right? So I shouldn't even share what I was thinking. But you get the point. But as the church, we are all called to be part of God's mission to all people. And in our personal lives, we're called to be on that mission as well. 
Maybe it's to our neighbor across the street, or maybe it's to our friends at school who are trying to find themselves and trying to find their identity. They don't know about Jesus, and they need to know about his story and be invited in. Uh, maybe it's, it's to a spouse who's lapsed in the faith. And let me say this too. Maybe you are someone who isn't from a Lutheran stock that goes back many, many generations. And your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather is Martin Luther himself, right? You know, um, maybe that's not you. But you still belong here. Come follow Jesus with us because Jesus' call is for all people and Jesus' call is for you now, today. Amen.